Good evening. My name is David Leslie as the Executive Director of the Rothko Chapel here in Houston, Texas. It's my pleasure to welcome you to the annual Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic this year, we are having the lecture presented virtually, which is very, very unfortunate because I really wish you could be here with us and have an opportunity to visit the newly uh, renovated and restored Rothko Chapel that reopened this past fall. However, the good news is by offering the lecture virtually, we have over 350 people registered, which is most ever from more than 29 states and a diversity of countries, including New Zealand, Ireland, Canada, and the UK. Putting on an event like this takes a lot of people, and it's, you can't see them here tonight, but I specifically want to lift up our program staff and our technical team, Ashley Clemmer, Kelly Johnson, Ben Doyle, and Jeremiah Stone for all their efforts to make this evening possible. And this year it's very special in the life of the chapel as we celebrate our 50th anniversary. Since its opening in 1971, the chapel has and continues to be an important pilgrimage destination welcoming visitors from all over the world who come here to seek solace, respite, renewal within the walls of this transformative sanctuary, a complete work of art by Mark Rothko. And this further invitation is extended and seen through Barnett Newman's Broken Obelisk, which you saw as you came into the chapel virtually this evening. The Broken Obelisk stands in front of the chapel on the plaza, above the reflecting pool, is an iconic sculpture dedicated to the life and living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. A little bit about its history. This important public work of art was purchased by the chapel's founders, John and Dominique de Menil, in 1969 with the intention that it would be installed and placed in front of City Hall here in Houston with a dedication to Dr. King, who had been assassinated in 1968. While the city leadership accepted the gift of the sculpture, unfortunately, they did not approve of the dedication to Dr. King as it was deemed to be too controversial and may upset race relations in the city. As a result, the Demon Nils rescinded the offer and eventually it ended up here at the Rothko Chapel, complete with the dedication, complementing the magnificent interior of the chapel that features the artwork of Mark Rothko. Collectively, these works of art invite us to explore our spiritual nature and strengthen our commitments to social justice and peacemaking, keeping us mindful of the implications of how we order and live out our individual and communal priorities and social commitments. The 2021 Martin Luther King birthday celebration exemplifies our commitments as the chapel continues a special 50th anniversary series of programs exploring the history and future of civil and human rights in our country and our collective responsibilities to join together to end injustice and further equity for all people. 
So tonight we gather on this wonderful occasion, this meaningful occasion, uh, Dr. King's birthday, as we have done here for the past 18 years with additional program that we've done since 1972 on key dates in the life of Dr. King, such as April 4th, the day of his assassination. Tonight's important gathering allows us to delve further into his call to mobilize and actively engage in actions that, as he said in a sermon popularly known as a knock at midnight, quote, adjourns the assemblies of hopelessness and brings new light in the dark chambers of pessimism. As Dr. King made very clear in his Christmas sermon on peace on December 24, 1967, quote, it really boils down to this, that all life is interrelated. Whatever affects one affects all indirectly. This is the way our universe is structured. This is its interrelated quality. We aren't going to have peace on earth until we recognize this basic fact of the interrelated structure of all reality, end quote. So then how do we find the courage, the ability to change perspectives and policies, and the unity of purpose needed to counter our disconnections, our lack of concern for one other, another, that lead to gross inequality, racism, and social division. To help us tonight reflect on these critical issues, it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce the 2021 MLK birthday celebration speaker, Professor Kianga Yamada Taylor. Professor Taylor is an assistant professor in the Department of African American Studies at Princeton University and is the author of Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry Undermined Black Home Ownership, published in 2019 by the University of North Carolina Press, long listed for a National Book Award for nonfiction and a 2020 finalist for the Pulitzer in history. Dr. Taylor's book, From Hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation, won the Lannan Cultural Freedom Award for an especially notable book in 2016. She is the editor of How We Get Free Black Feminism in the Gumbahi River Collective, which won the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ nonfiction in 2018, and a columnist for The New Yorker. In addition to her teaching and her writing, Dr. Taylor is an activist who is deeply versed in the legacy and contemporary relevancy of the radical king. In an article that was published in the Paris Review on Dr. King's birthday in 2018, she wrote, quote, King's realization was the need for even greater forces to be recruited into the movement to achieve social transformation within the United States. By the end of his life, Dr. King recognized the coercive power of other forms of disobedience. In planning a Poor People's March in Washington, D.C., he called for extra-legal protests not aimed at undoing unjust laws, but in the name of political and economic demands that represented the interest of the majority. In Memphis, during the sanitation workers' strike in 1968, 
he called for a general strike to shut down the entire city. She goes on to note in that article that Dr. King told Jose Iglesias in the New York Times Magazine a week before his assassination. The movement to uproot poverty and inequality throughout the country would be a long and difficult struggle for our program calls for redistribution of economic power. In recognition of her work and witness, Dr. Taylor has been honored and named as one of the most influential African Americans in this country and change makers in the United States of America. Before I present Dr. Taylor, I also want to note tonight we are very grateful to have Brandon Mack with us who will introduce, will moderate this evening's conversation with Dr. Taylor. Brandon is a lead organizer with Black Lives Matter Houston, co-chapter director of the New Leaders Council Houston, and amongst all of his things that he's doing in this city, He's also a PhD student in the Higher Education Leadership and Policy Studies at the University of Houston. And please note that during the talk, you're more than welcome to send a question if you have to Professor Taylor. We invite you to email your questions during her talk to programs at rothkochapel.org, which will be on the screen, and Brandon will do his best to include them in some of the conversation tonight. And now, it is my privilege to present Professor Kianga Yamada Taylor, the 2021 Rothko Chapel Martin Luther King Birthday Celebration Speaker. We look forward to a most engaging evening. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to uh, be with everyone this evening, um, even under pandemic conditions, so from my uh, home in Philadelphia. Um, first thing, I'd like to thank uh, Rothko Chapel for the extending the invitation um, to have me speak this evening. Um, and everyone who has uh, contributed to putting this event together. Um, so I'm gonna speak for about uh, half an hour or so, uh, and then um, I'm looking forward to the conversation uh, with Brandon afterwards. The Radical King. In 1983, after years of lobbying by civil rights advocates and Coretta Scott King, Ronald Reagan, President Ronald Reagan, uh, the sitting president, but a lifelong opponent of King, agreed to sign legislation turning Martin Luther King's birthday into a national holiday. At the time of King's murder in 1968, then Governor Ronald Reagan of California made the callous and racist statements that described King's death as, quote, a great tragedy that began when we began compromising with law and order and people started choosing which laws they'd break. Right-wing reactionaries often reduced the civil rights strategy of civil disobedience as simple lawlessness or the struggles in the North as violating their norms of law and order. Reagan ended his remarks in 1968 about King's assassination by denigrating the concept of equality as outside the boundaries of the American dream, saying, quote, 
The American dream that we have nursed so long is not that every man be level with every other man, but that every man be free to become whatever God intended. So it was a moment of triumph as old segregationists and racists like Ronald Reagan, who had opposed King as a leader of the civil rights movement, twisted with fury. But it was also a moment of tragedy as it allowed the, the signing of uh, the, the formal recognition of King's birthday as a holiday, as it allowed for the very complicated politics of King to be defanged and defiled and twisted into hollow pleas for peace, justice, equality, and colorblindness. That was the trade-off. King could only be a hero if he were stranded in 1963 at the Lincoln Memorial, delivering the final lines of what became known as his I Have a Dream speech, entombed in a casket of idolatry and impotence. The problem with how we remember King is not just the inaccuracy or distortions, but it is how those distortions are also used to rewrite the history of the civil rights movement as an endeavor that confirmed the essential progressive trajectory of American history. In this way, the civil rights movement is remembered as a triumphant part of the American story of progress instead of a movement that exposed the deep and abiding roots of American racism and the codification of second-class citizenship for African-Americans. But neither the rise of King or the emergence of the civil rights movement confirms the inherent progress motoring U.S. history forward. Both King's political tra trajectory and the essentially radical nature of the civil rights movement confirm that in the United States, progress is not guaranteed. It is only the result of enduring social movements, labor movement, and struggle. Contemporary Black movements against institutional and entrenched racism show that the arc of American history is long, but it bends towards racism and inequality. One need look no further than our current national dilemma of multiplying and metastasizing crises, to know that progress is not the natural order of life in the United States. We are living through the aftermath of Donald J. Trump, President of the United States, having tried to lead a murderous and racist rebellion against a duly elected president to reimpose himself as the head of the country. Trump has wielded the tools of racism, xenophobia, religious hatred, and a deep abiding misogyny, all wound together in the rubric of white supremacy. But white supremacy has never existed for its own sake. It has always been yoked to a larger objective of social control to the benefit of a white elite and more social control and manipulation of ordinary black and brown people, but ordinary white people as well. Anyone who thinks that the antics of the Trump administration and the Republican Party writ large is only about race is thinking too narrowly and ignoring that this tempest of racism and white nationalism is happening within the larger whirlwind of class warfare. What does class warfare look like? It is not envy or jealousy as Republicans like to insist upon. It looks like the incomes of the top 5% of earners increasing faster than the incomes of other families. 
Since the Great Recession of 2008, the richest families, the top 5%, are the only ones to have gained wealth since then. From 2007 to 2016, the median net worth of the richest 20% of Americans increased by 13% to $1.2 million. Meanwhile, the greatest loss of wealth, 39%, came from families who saw their net worth drop from $32,000 in 1997 to $19,000 in 2016. As a result, the wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families more than doubled from 1989 to 2016. In 1989, the richest 5% of families had 114 times as much wealth as families in the bottom 20%. Compared by 2016, this ratio had increased to 248. This enormous shift in wealth and resources from the bottom to the top has come with a steady erosion of public programs. That erosion, and in some cases, the absolute demolition of the public sector and social programs aimed at easing inequality has been hastened by the cynical invocation of race and the demonization of poor and working class black families. Even where white families have benefited from the meager resources the United States offers the poor and dispossessed, a bipartisan effort to paint various welfare programs as the root of supposed indolence of unwed and uneducated Black mothers was, has been deployed to undermine the program for both Black and fam white families alike. The pernicious framing of personal responsibility to explain both success and failure within the United States has been used to chew away at the social ties that bind a society together. It was unleashed to corrode and transform King's beloved community into every person for themselves in this country. It has helped to explain as common sense the gross wealth inequality that we see as a natural outcome when some people work very hard and are thus rewarded with enormous wealth and the good life, and where those who are demonized as not working hard suffer poverty that is invariably described as their own fault. Indeed, these dangerous racial politics were the context within which the King holiday was signed into law by the reactionary former President Ronald Reagan. Reagan, who invented the fictitious character of the quote-unquote welfare queen, in order to demonize black women using publicly available services of the social welfare state, finally acquiesced in making King's birthday a national holiday to provide himself a cover during his first term as he was politically assailed from the left for gutting the social welfare state. The elevation of the King holiday was used to diffuse the accusations of racism even as black families were assailed by an unfolding war on drugs, inaugurated by Reagan, and plundered by soaring unemployment and growing ranks of poverty. Two years into Reagan's first term, black unemployment had risen to 21%, and it would, no, it would go no lower than 10% by the end of the decade. 
1982 rate of poverty, poverty rate of 14% was the highest that it had been since 1965, which was the start of Johnson's war, uh, Johnson's war on poverty. But for African-Americans, the bottom was falling out as poverty consumed an astounding 30% of the black population. The dull legacy of King and the deadening repetition of I have a dream was used as a weapon by the right to silence their critics as race baiters, allowing for the promulgation of a toxic colorblindness that dismissed black suffering as irresponsibility and a product of broken black families. Together, untenable wealth inequality in combination with the destruction of the social sphere has unleashed at historic levels of instability, anxiety, and anger. The right, led by Donald Trump, has tried to manage the growing storm with vicious racism intended to blame the most vulnerable as criminals, depraved and dangerous, to explain both inequality, but to also justify the abuse of police. But Trump has gone beyond divide and conquer and blaming black and Latino uh, families for the crises in white America, he has offered a narrative of white power to ordinary white people as an aspiration to achieve what they believe was a birthright, what they believe was to be a birthright in earlier generations. Making America Great Again, a slogan that Trump plagiarized from Ronald Reagan's 1980 presidential campaign, is an aspiration to return to a time when white men were in firm control of the country. From the original frontier of manifest destiny to the new frontier of the post-World War II era. The enslavement of Africans or the extermination of indigenous populations and the super exploitation of Latino and other immigrant labor were simply the cost of establishing American greatness and that the white men of the United States, and that the white men of the United States were able to carry this conquest out was in fact evidence of their greatness. In the post-war era, the extension of this greatness meant unfettered access to the social contract that white American, that the white American middle class grew out of, the New Deal, the GI Bill, home ownership, well-paying jobs with benefits. All the while, white families were getting fat on the ideological offerings of the American state about the American dream and American exceptionalism, the greatness of the United States above all, other, all others. This mythology of the American past built around the capitalist realism of ascendant white American men, their doting wives and obedient children is at the center of our national narrative to the exclusion of everyone else is what it has meant, uh, is what has been meant by Make America Great Again. The presence of African-Americans and the struggles of black people have always interrupted this narrative lie. The mere presence of African-Americans in the United States created an originating paradox. How could the world's first representative democracy also be a slaveholding nation. The contradiction was explained with racism and the supposition that black people were something other than individuals who shared the aspirations 
of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The violent exploitation of black labor and the subjection of black persons and the genocidal policies of indigenous expulsion have stood in contradiction to the stated ideals of the United States from its inception. And their resistance has not only exposed this narrative myth as a lie, but in doing so has provided a counter narrative of resistance and struggle in search of democracy, justice, and freedom. While American slavery and the racism produced in its wake has been described as an original sin, racial domination and black subordination continued well beyond slavery, right into the modern era of the United States development as the most powerful country in the world. But it was the emergence of black protest movements in the 20th century that upended the ideological foundation of the US as a superpower. The idealization of American democracy and freedom, the supposition of the US as a just nation was a pretext for its interventions across the world. It justified its enormous investment in the military. It justified its bombardment or occupation of other countries. But that foundation for intervention was disrupted by black struggle. The black movement first in the North struggled for fair employment, good housing, in opposition to police brutality. And then again in the American South, it struggled for an end to legal apartheid, disenfranchisement, and second-class citizenship. This was not a preordained march towards progress. This was the march of the US disrupted by the advent of black struggle and protest. King understood how these contradictions between what America said to the world but what it did at home to black people created political vulnerabilities that could be exploited when exposed. As the United States began to act on civil rights and to abandon the backward ways of its Southern region, it did so in ways to preserve as much of the status quo as possible, but to remove the potential for the South's backwardness to continue to act as a fetter on the US's diplomatic intentions. In an amicus brief submitted by the U.S. Attorney General in support of the plaintiffs in the historic Brown versus Board uh, of Education decision or court case, the amicus brief read in part, quote, the United States is trying to prove to the people of the world of every nationality, race and color, that a free democracy is the most civilized and most secure form of government yet devised by man. The existence of discrimination against minority groups in the United States has an adverse effect upon our relations with other countries. Racial discrimination furnishes grist for the communist propaganda mill. Even so, with so much at stake, state officials across the South and the federal government had to be pushed to change laws that subjected African-Americans to second-class citizenship. <clears throat> Eventually, the South would relent as an avalanche of protests indicated that young black people had lost their fear of the white establishment and would never submit to the coercive pressures that had terrorized their parents. Even with, pressures, with the pressures of Cold War liberalism to end Jim Crow, it still took events like the Montgomery bus boycott, the lunch counter uh, sit-in protests, the Freedom Rides, 
and endless marches and demonstrations to dramatize Black humanity and articulate that Black people were also deserving of freedom. But changing quote unquote race relations in the United States could be done cheaply. You could change the law with no real commitment to improving the lives of Black people. Changing the law would no longer allow the enemies of the United States to point to the legally degraded status of African-Americans as evidence of American hypocrisy. But African-Americans were interested in much more than a, than a change in legal language. They wanted access to the full range of benefits that were assumed to come with American citizenship. They wanted social mobility. They wanted self-determination. In less abstract terms, they wanted good jobs, good housing, good schools, an end to racist police terrorism. They wanted the good life. King knew that his desire for a better life was not only in the South, but it belonged to African-Americans across the country. Five days after the Voting Rights Act it was signed into law in August of 1965, South Central Los Angeles exploded in rebellion. There had been riots in Rochester, Harlem, and Philadelphia in the summer of 1964, but the explosion in Los Angeles was on a scale unseen in the United States in the 20th century. Over the course of six days, Black Angelinos rebelled against the vicious racist status quo. The results were devastating. 34 deaths, over 1,000 injuries, nearly 4,000 arrests, and the destruction of property valued at $40 million. King traveled to LA. He told reporters that the Watts riots were, quote, the beginning of a stirring of those people in our society who have been passed by the progress of the past decade. Struggles in the North, King believed, were really about, quote, dignity and work rather than rights which had been the main goal of Black activism in the South. During his discussions with locals, King met with Black residents who argued for armed insurrection and others who claimed, quote, the only way we can ever get anyone to listen to us is to start a riot. This was the beginning of an important pivot, not only in the tactical and strategic approach of King, but politically, there was a developing critique of racism and its connection to a political economy in the United States that kept it intact. When King left the South and headed to Chicago to join a campaign to fight a, a different kind of racism that did not mount signs designating segregated drinking fountains, but a racism that nevertheless forced Black families into segregated and dilapidated neighborhoods. Undoing the racism found in cities across the North required more than just changing the law. It required redistributing the resources. It required enforcing existing laws that banned the federal government from engaging in discriminatory actions that violated the 14th Amendment and its Equal Protection Clause. King understood this, and in an essay he composed at the end of his life, he wrote of, the, he wrote of this dynamic saying, quote, all too many Americans believe justice will unfold painlessly or that its absence for black people will be tolerated tranquilly. Justice for black people will not flow into society merely from court decisions, nor from fountains of political oratory, nor will a few token changes quell all the temp 
tempestuous yearnings of millions of disadvantaged Black people. White America must recognize that justice for Black people cannot be achieved without radical changes in the structure of our society. The comfortable, the entrenched, the privileged cannot continue to tremble at the prospect of change in the status quo. Over the course of the 1960s, the war on poverty and great society spending programs could not keep up with the pace of black anger. From 1964 through 1968, more than half a million African-Americans were involved in more than 250 uprisings in the country. When a federal commission was paneled to investigate the causes of rebellion, they sent investigators to all the cities where, where riots had exploded and interviewed re residents. There were many reasons that motivated these uprisings, but three reasons that resonated in each of the cities was unemployment, substandard housing, and police brutality. As the Vietnam War developed over the course of the decade, it leached resources from the war on poverty to fund the military effort. King's political maturation prompted him to connect the US war in Vietnam to the deteriorating conditions in US cities. And even more of even more consequence, it prompted him to search for more effective tactics in confronting the legal menace of segregation in the North and its attendant crises, slum conditions, unemployment, and police brutality. Within this context, King began to publicly articulate an anti-capitalist analysis of the United States that put him in sync with rising critiques from the global revolutionary left of market-based economies. Despite the quote-unquote affluence of the United States, it was nevertheless racked by poverty and entrenched in endless warfare. King masterfully tore down the wall that political and economic establishments used to separate domestic policies from foreign policies. He debunked the lie at the core of the Johnson administration that they could deliver both guns and butter. And he pointed out how the Vietnam War made it impossible to satisfy the deep need that existed on the home front. Moreover, any society invested in the evisceration of the Vietnamese people could not be truly a society committed to developing the human potential of its own people. As the black movement moved into its revolutionary phase by the end of the late 1960s, young African-Americans, including King, had radicalized through their repeated encounters with the American state and its failure to produce substantive change. It would be wrong to say that there was no change over the course of the 1960s. Of course, there was lots of change, but none of it was enough. Liberals complained that the black movement was demanding too much too quickly. But King condemned that line of reasoning in a much earlier letter from a Birmingham that, that he wrote from a Birmingham, from the, Birmingham, the jail in Birmingham in 1963, um, when he wrote contemptuously about the quote, white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, quote, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. 
who paternalistically feels he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a quote, more convenient season. By the late 1960s in the months and weeks prior to King's death, his view of the problems facing black people became more complex and their resolution more complicated. The failure of government to adequately provide for its citizens while lavishing the military with unquenchable human and financial resources forced King and others to come to, forced King and others to come to other conclusions about transforming the gross inequities of American society. For some young people, it led them to rebellion and violence against those they believed to be responsible for their condition. For other largely young people, many of them became anti-capitalist revolutionaries, convinced that American capitalism would never equitably share the spoils of its tremendous riches. King did not advocate riots. After uprisings in Detroit and Newark in 1967, the, both of which were the most destructive rebellions of the period, he said in a speech to his organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference weeks later, quote, occasionally Negroes contend that the 1965 Watts riot and other riots in various cities represented effective civil rights action. But those who express this view always end up with stumbling words when asked what concrete gains have been won as a result. At best, the riots have produced a little additional anti-poverty money allotted by frightened government officials and a few water sprinklers to cool the children of the ghettos. It is something like improving the food in the prison while people remain securely incarcerated behind bars. Nowhere have the riots won any concrete improvements, such as the organized protests demonstrations have. But he also believed it was the height of American hypocrisy to decry riots while this country's military was bombarding Vietnam. It meant that the US government had no moral authority. And for all of his critiques of black political violence, he also understood its impact. In an essay published a year after his death, he wrote, quote, I am not sad that black Americans are rebelling. This was not only inevitable, but eminently desirable. Without this magnificent ferment among Negroes, the old evasions and procrastinations would have continued indefinitely. Black men have slammed the door shut on the past of deadening passivity. Except for the reconstruction years, they have never in their long history on American soil struggled with such creativity and courage for their freedom. These are our bright years of emergence, though they are painful ones. They cannot be avoided in these trying circumstances. The black revolution is much more than a struggle for the rights of Negroes. It is forcing America to face all of its interrelated flaws, racism, poverty, militarism, materialism. It is exposing the evils that are rooted deeply in the whole structure of our society. It reveals systemic rather than superficial flaws and suggests that radical reconstruction of society itself is the real issue to be faced. What this meant was that the black movement was never a movement unto itself. 
interested only in a narrow set of demands. The state has always overreacted to black struggle because of the way that black social movements upend every preconceived assumption about American society. The black movement shatters the illusion that the US has historic, is, is historically just because it, uh, the black movement shatters the illusion of the US as historically just because it is a reminder of the legacy of slavery. Contemporary black movements against institutional and entrenched racism show that the arc of American history is long and it bends towards, again, racism and inequality. When black people uh, uh, deep into the 20th century and now into the 21st century must continue to fight for very basic rights and against very basic injustice, it is a reminder that American hubris and piety are unearned and unwarranted. Indeed, the struggles of African-Americans expose the central mythologies of the United States as actually a scaffolding of lies and hypocrisy. These afflictions are not only the burden of black people and other racially oppressed groups in this country, they are a problem for white people as well. To be enthralled by these lies and hypocrisies of racism, white supremacy, and the inherent greatness of the United States is detrimental to white people who can never achieve the, spoil, the spoils of whiteness that whiteness is supposed to ensure because American capitalism enriches only those, uh, only the few to the detriment of the many. And this is the heart of the matter. The problem that King, of King and thousands of other revolutionaries from the 1960s in the United States unraveled. The problem in the United States were not just ones of ignorance. The problems of racism, poverty, militarism, and materialism could not be solved simply by exposing them or comprehending them more fully. They had to be attacked at the root. King was his most eloquent when he got down to the root of this problem. Quote, as we talk about where do we go from here, from a speech in 1967, August of 1967, we must honestly face the fact that the movement must address itself to the question of restructuring the whole of American society. There are 40 million poor people here. And one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you are raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalist economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the society, about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life's marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, when you deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that is two thirds water? A nation that will keep people in slavery for 244 years 
will thingify them, make them things, and therefore they will exploit them and poor people generally, economically, and a nation that will exploit economically will have foreign investments in everything else, and it will have to use its military might to protect them. All of these problems are tied together. The lack of resolution to these issues by the end of the 1960s and well into the 1970s has brought us to the moment we are in today. But as I begin, these conditions of racism overlapping with economic inequality have combined in ways that have made African-Americans more vulnerable to COVID-19. It has left them more likely to lose their homes to eviction, more likely to lose their jobs, and as a result, more likely to lose their health care. King's life ended both as he was helping to organize a mass campaign of civil disobedience in the nation's capital in hopes of coercing elected officials into producing even greater amounts of money, resources, and programs to stem the brutality of poverty in the world's richest country. King and the SCLC called for massive civil disobedience to shut down business as usual in Washington, D.C., to dramatize poverty and inequality in the United States. He was also intimately involved in the campaign of sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee, desperately trying to win union recognition, to raise their wages, and to force the white supremacist municipal government to recognize their humanity. It was a movement in Memphis that united poor black workers with the broader black community on the basis of solidarity and unity. The withdrawal of labor by black sanitation workers demonstrated that even the poorest and most marginalized of the black working class had the power to bring the city to the negotiating table as trash piled up around the city, around Memphis. But those workers were only able to survive the backlash of racist city authorities and white people in the city because black community rallied to their side. It was a community struggle. And that brings me to the end here. These conditions we face today, institutional racism, white supremacy, police terror, poverty, inequality, and an unending death toll with COVID-19 will not end because they should. They can only end through struggle and what King described as the radical reconstruction of American society. And I wanted to close with one more quote from him, brief quote. This is from a, 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 a talk that he gave in um, uh, 1967 as a series of talks he gave for the uh, Canadian Broadcasting Company. Quote, we may now be in only the initial period of an era of change as far reaching in its consequences as the American Revolution. The developed industrial nations of the world cannot remain secure islands of prosperity in a seething sea of poverty. The storm is rising against the privileged minority of the earth from which there is no shelter in isolation and armament. The storm will not abate until a just distribution of the fruits of the earth enables man everywhere to live in dignity and human decency. The American Negro of 1967, like Crispus Attucks, may be the vanguard in a prolonged struggle that may change the shape of the world 
as billions of deprived shake and transform the earth in their quest for life, freedom, and justice. Thank you. Good evening. My name is Brandon Mack. I'm an activist and organizer with Black Lives Matter Houston. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said these words, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. My friends, we can no longer be silent. Unchecked white supremacy and unchecked white privilege is what we saw at the US Capitol. My hope is that tonight's event and the words and conversation that we're about to have will be the start of ending that silence and checking systemic oppressions. So Dr. Taylor, thank you so much for your amazing and excellent words, and we will start our Q&A se uh, session. So first, in the spirit of King's legacy, what are the top three measurable changes on the racial, economic, social justice, front that need to happen to give credence that we are in fact becoming a more just and equitable country? Well, I mean, there's, you know, there, there's a, a, a ton that needs to be done um, immediately. We're in the midst of a uh, public health uh, crisis, um, an economic crisis, uh, you know, a million more people have filed new, uh, um, uh, uh, request for unemployment. So, um, you know, I think the, the, the most immediate uh, things that have to be uh, met is that, you know, people are talking about $600 checks, $1,400 checks. We need $2,000 uh, checks for people uh, 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 immediately. Um, we need uh, federal intervention uh, to stop this threat of uh, foreclosure and eviction that millions of people are facing um, in just a few weeks at the end of uh, January. We need a competent plan for the distribution of uh, the, the uh, COVID-19 vaccine. Um, you know, there's, there's a, an unending uh, list of things that are, are necessary uh, just to begin to even have um, the, the, the conversation. And so I think that, um, you know, this was really the underlying issue of the Black Lives Matter protests um, over the summer. And, you know, I think that those issues are just the, the, the beginning point, really trying to do something immediately in response to uh, the virus, which has been allowed to just chew through this country unchecked. Uh, for for weeks, for months now, we don't even who is running the government right now. Um, all of these things are 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 not known, but these are, I think, the immediate steps um, that you know should be undertaken. So, as a follow up to that question, why do you think? whenever an intentional action is called for. So for example, we have individuals who are in positions of power saying that they value diversity, they value equi equity, they value inclusion, but it requires a direct and intentional action for that to be achieved. Why do you think that there's always met with some pushback for when those calls happen, but the direct intentional action needed to make that happen always is met with pushback? Well, I think that our, the, the politics in the United States are, are broken. 
um, and they've been broken for a very long time. And so I think that there is an assumption and it's true that in order to satisfy these things, so if we say we want $2,000 checks, we want universal health care, uh, we want uh, universal child care, um, we want all of these things. Well, those things have to be paid for. Mm -hmm. And if those things are going to be paid for, then uh, uh, some people are going to be uh, taxed. Um, and so some of us say, well, the rich should be taxed to pay for those things. Um, and that has become uh, uh, such a toxic formulation in politics that it means no one wants to deal with that. No one wants to uh, uh, touch that issue. And so now you, you see that there was a, a, a proposal, Biden has put forth a proposal um, for uh, a $1.3 trillion uh, rescue plan, phase one. Um, and already people, the, the, the so-called deficit hawks have come out of uh, the woodwork to talk about, wow, this is too expensive and what about the debt? Uh, issues that they had no concern uh, about when um, uh, Donald Trump was uh, uh, pushing through uh, his enormous tax giveaway to the rich a few years ago, or the, the insane amount of money. We give the military almost $1 trillion a year, um, and that is just voted up and down uh, without any uh, pause or question. And so that, that's why there is reluctance, because to provide the good life, right, to provide the, the kind of life um, that King was insistent upon um, when undertaking this um, uh, campaign uh, against poverty and racism, well, that costs something. And we now have uh, a, a, a politics uh, that are refused to pay and that have, have been refusing uh, to pay and instead say that, well, these conditions exist because people are lazy, because they don't want to, uh, to work hard. They lack personal responsibility. Um, and so when you have national crises um, like this, wrenched by COVID-19, then they no longer have the luxury of pointing to individuals and saying, well, you didn't work hard enough or this was your fault because it's clear that this was a disaster that no one predicted or could have done anything about. And so it creates a different kind of pressure on the government uh, to act. And so I think that there is a real opportunity right now um, to take advantage of this uh, but Democrats are often constrained by the same kinds of political thinking. And that is why social movements and activism remain so critical in forcing the political status quo uh, to think in ways they don't want to think and to do things they certainly don't want to do. Absolutely agree with that. We have to deal with the direct issue that has been at the heart of the United States that we have a fundamental problem with the devaluation of lives and most specifically Absolutely. the devaluation of black lives. So we have yes. to continue to push for that. So I couldn't agree more. Uh, one of the questions from the attendees was to go back to one of the points that you made in your initial remarks about U.S. intervention in conflicts in other countries and its impact on race relations in the United States. If you could elaborate with some of those connections. Um, just that 
the the U.S.'s efforts to insert itself militarily in the affairs of, of other countries has always been complicated um, by its treatment most pronouncedly of African-Americans uh, at home. Um, you know, it, it is very difficult to, you know, argue that um, in the 1960s that you're uh, going into Vietnam to stop communism and to promote democracy when black people in the South can't vote. Uh, and when they attempt to vote, they are uh, beaten viciously and have dogs uh, sicked upon them. Um, or when the, the police and, and military unleash um, unprecedented violence against black people protesting uh, in, in urban, uh, uh, in Northern cities uh, against police brutality. Um, it complicates the efforts of the U.S. to uh, project itself as a beacon uh, of democracy, which is why it has spent the last 50 years trying to promote this notion of colorblindness um, and to essentially say that once the U.S. took race out of the law, ending Jim Crow, that the U.S. was no longer a country uh, with a race relations problem. And I think you can see uh, how this conflict and how this problem continues to present itself because you know joe biden said um shortly after he won that quote america is back um which was you know meant as a rejoinder to uh donald trump's america first um uh political uh ethos but what does that mean america is back uh when we're talking about military occupations um, in the Middle East, in Afghanistan, or in uh, Iraq? What does it mean for the U.S. Uh, to continue to see itself as a police of the world, given what is happening in this country? On what basis and authority would the U.S. have to intervene anywhere when the democracy within this country uh, appears to be so fragile, uh, when uh, uh, the, the, the racism um, in this country uh, appears to be completely out of control. And so that's, that's part of the, the, the issue here is that the United States has always held, with, held itself up as uh, what Madeleine Albright described as the exceptional uh, country. And, um, you know, the events of the, the last week um, you really reveal the extent to which the U.S. is exceptional uh, only in the minds of uh, its leadership, but not certainly uh, in the you know international community, and certainly not uh, for oppressed and marginalized people within the country. So one of the concepts that you just brought up was colorblindness, which you deal with in your book hashtag Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation. Uh, one of the central points, and I absolutely love the book, highly recommend everyone checks it out, is you Thank brought you. up the problem with diversification, that mere diversification is often used as a solution to problems. So diversifying political officials to being more black and brown as a solution to racism. Uh, what would you say with respect to that problem, to diversification, when it comes to people saying we need to just diversify our police forces as a way of, of as a way of being able to combat uh, police brutality, well, people did say that. I mean, in 1968, um, when I talked about uh, in passing in the uh, the talk that after the riots in Detroit and Newark in 1967, uh, Lyndon Johnson paneled uh, a commission to 
uh, investigate the causes of the riots. It was called the Kerner Commission. Um, and one of the central uh, uh, issues that uh, came out of uh, the Kerner Commission um, was police racism, police brutality, and the solution uh, to that was greater professionalization uh, of police um, and the recruitment of uh, more black police uh, and the invention of this concept of community policing. Um, and so that has been the strategy of American policing for the last 50 years. Um, and, you know, I would say that uh, it's been a failure. Um, New York City, which has notoriously uh, uh, horrible relation, race relations between the police um, and black and brown communities, uh, the New York City police force is majority non-white. So that, that's not really the, uh, the issue. Uh, the number of women, the number of uh, minorities on uh, police have, uh, in the last 50 years, has transformed exponentially. And that has had no impact, no impact on the behavior uh, of the police. And that is because of what the role of the police in our society is. If we have learned nothing over the last week, we should have learned that policing in the United States has nothing to do with public safety. It has nothing to do with keeping order uh, uh, in, in you know, situations like we saw at the Capitol. It is about social control uh, of, of uh, black communities. It is about social control of working class uh, communities. It's not even about responding to crime uh, in those communities where the, where the police actually uh, exists. Police exist to manage crises in American um, society. And so 50 years of having more women, more African-Americans, more racially oppressed and marginalized people um, on, uh, um, it, within American police forces has changed almost nothing about American policing. So we know that it doesn't work and we know that it hasn't worked, but and yet when we have calls for reimagining these systems that Dr. Martin Luther King asked for and that we're asking for in this current moment, why do you think it's so hard for people to be open to the reimagining of these systems? Well, I think, I think it's hard to imagine something that you've never seen before and um, have never conceived to be uh, conceived to be possible. So for people who um, advocate, for example, uh, defunding uh, the police and others who take that uh, two steps to its conclusion, which is uh, the abolition of uh, policing and prisons in American society, they don't just do so uh, cavalierly um, as if issues of crime and violence are unimportant uh, uh, to them. Uh, the, the, the demand to defund the police is really a demand about redistribution. Um, it is about the recognition that continuing to pour public resources into policing um, while starving other programs that have actually demonstrably been shown to 
provide an alternative uh, for people that have been shown to uh, have an impact um, on, on crime. If we understand crime as a, a social phenomenon, not uh, uh, a, a result of, of bad or evil people, but crime is a social phenomenon uh, that comes from some form uh, of, of deprivation uh, or some form of alienation, that if we can attend to those issues, then the idea is that we won't need police. Um, and that there's, there are ways that people within neighborhoods and communities can resolve tension, um, can resolve conflict without destroying people's lives, without either killing people or without sending people to jail and prison, which leads to uh, what Michelle Alexander uh, termed the new Jim Crow. Uh, and what she was talking about was how this generation uh, of black men uh, in particular, who had been confined to prisons and jails, found themselves when they were getting out uh, uh, completely uh, restricted from any kind of social engagement because they had a criminal record. That was the Jim Crow that she was referring to. It meant that you, you, know, you can't get housing. You can't get any public assistance if you have a criminal record. So why are we trying to resolve conflicts by destroying people's lives? There has to be a different way. And I think that we have to talk to people and try to think in those terms to get people uh, to engage in a, in a practice of thinking differently um, uh, about how things could be. We have been so trained to believe that there's no money, that there's no new programs coming. And so in that context, we're told, you know, well, you can either have the police or you can have nothing. And what we're saying is that's a false choice, exactly. that there, there are real choices that can be made. And so instead of paying hundreds of millions of dollars to settle police wrongful death suits or police brutality lawsuits, why don't we spend that money on something else? Instead of making the policing budget a third of you know, the operating budget for major cities in, in Los Angeles, 51% of the operating budget in LA goes to the police. This is absurd. This is an obscenity. And so that's what we're saying that this, this makes no sense. This is a completely irrational, insane way to organize society. And we don't have to do it that way. We can do it differently. Exactly. I agree with the mantra, try it, you might like it, because we need yeah. something different. <laughs> Absolutely, we need something different. So from uh, the attendees, much of the left liberalism in the U.S. seems to be caught up in either class reductionism or race reductionism. What thoughts do you have on the work it will take to disrupt that divide? Well, I, d I, don't, I don't think that that's actually accurate. I mean, I, I think that, you know, there are uh, some people, you know, I don't think whole groups, um, there's some people who think that uh, uh, issues with the economy or, or class um, 
are the most important. Um, uh, they tend to be organized around the idea that, you know, if we just had universal programs, those in and of themselves uh, would solve the problems of, of black people who are disproportionately poor and working class. Um, and then, you know, there are some uh, uh, organized around uh, BLM, but certainly uh, by no means everyone, um, or even most groups, you know, who think that, um, you know, that, that we need to, to work kind of uh, just on, on issues of, of, of race. And I think even that, I think, you know, it's, it's just not, it's, it's not totally accurate of uh, what exists on the ground because um, if you're doing anti-racist uh, organizing or you're working with black communities, I mean, the majority of black people are working class and poor. And so you, it's very difficult to work in those communities and work on um, uh, issues of race and somehow avoid uh, issues of, of, of class. That's not, that's, it's, it's not actually um, what happens. I mean, I, I do think that, um, you know, there are lots of competing ideas about um, what is racism, uh, in the aftermath of BLM protest, uh, you know, everyone in the political establishment began talking about systemic racism uh, without ever mentioning what the system is in systemic racism. Like, what exactly is it that they are uh, referring to? Um, and you can tell that there is a real desire to try to understand this. I mean, Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist was uh, a, a number one, um, you know, New York Times bestseller uh, for weeks over the summer. Uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast um, uh, is a number one, you know, New York Times bestseller. Has been uh, in the top ten for uh, since it came out. Um, Eddie Gloud's Begin Again, which is a, an examination of uh, James Baldwin's thoughts about race. Um, a New York Times bestseller. And so this is indicative that, that people, uh, Robin D'Angelo's De, De, uh, uh, White Fragility, people want to understand um, racism because it's so apparent that this is uh, the, the, the glue um, that holds the United States together. Um, and yet we saw protests of, uh, according to the New York Times, 26 million people uh, participating in Black Lives Matter uh, protests over the summer, um, including millions of white people. Um, and so I think, you know, that um, really represents uh, the, the future of our movement. And people, you know, don't necessarily have all the, the right questions or uh, political analysis of how race functions um, in the United States. And so that's why we need more uh, discussions on the left. We need more organizations, uh, bigger organizations. Not everybody's kind of gone off into their, their own little group, but we need bigger movement organizations um, that takes political education seriously, that takes uh, you know, political um, theory, seriously, not theory for theory's sake, but theory mm -hmm. 
as a way to understand how society works um, and, and as a way to inform our political strategy and tactics. You know, you can't just have strategy and tactics that are pulled out of thin air um, and that aren't actually connected to um, uh, ideas about how the world actually functions and works. Um, and so to me, what needs to happen um, is not, you know, the typical American answer, which is, a, you know, a series of personal revelations and understandings or, you know, people get their privilege checked or called out. I mean, that, that might lend some catharsis to some people, but what we actually need uh, are serious organizations that take these uh, questions seriously um, and try to investigate and understand them um, and try to, we need organizations um, that are actually trying to influence political debate, uh, that are fighting for uh, its perspectives to be um, within the, the public realm. Um, and that, you know, that's one of our biggest challenges right now. You, you see how the right um, has seized uh, the Republican Party and the, the Republican Party is a mouthpiece even for the loopiest, most fringe ideas that exist uh, on the right. Um, they have uh, a home in the Republican Party. Um, and that just does not, and it means that um, for whatever tensions have existed, I mean, this particular stuff over the last week presents specific issues, but over the last several years, you've seen that the right has been able to unify around the Republican Party um, and, and use that influence to shape public opinion, to intervene in public debates. And the left has no such thing. The Democratic Party, uh, uh, its leadership is completely hostile uh, to the, the, the left in this country, unless it's election season and they want young people's energy to go out and canvas uh, and get people to, to vote. But otherwise, they don't want to hear anything about universal health care, Medicare for all. They don't want to hear anything about canceling um, student debt. And so it turns into this big tent, which means that its message is constantly um, muddled. And, and Joe Biden, you know, who throughout the election season is trying to uh, um, uh, appeal to all of these factions and not have the party just completely splinter, then just says the most inconsequential things mm -hmm. uh, so as to not offend anyone. So he spends the campaign season, you know, saying that this is about the soul, you know, saving the soul of America or unity or all of these kind of vague phrases that don't actually mean anything. And so mm -hmm. in the meantime, you know, you've got all of these people in, you know, who are alienated, who are angry, who are frustrated, not just white people, black people, Latinx people. And there's, there's like no struggle for, you know, to try to present these people with an explanation uh, for what is happening with, uh, uh, you know, politics and history and a d debate about how do we change things. Instead, it's, you know, the soul of America and unity. I mean, this is why the Democrats could beat Trump and then lose everything else, right? right? Lose seats in the House. 
not flip the Senate until, you know, much later when that would, that was the only thing focused on. Um, and so this is a big challenge for our side is uh, to build the kinds of organizations and structures that uh, allow us to um, uh, really intervene in these uh, public discussions uh, and debates. There's a political ideological war happening um, in America and uh, so much of it has been conceded uh, to the right. And we are seeing the, the, the bitter fruits of that um, over the last several weeks. If we were in person, there would have been several snaps for me throughout that entire <laughs> statement, by the way. Um, I will just say, just to add one other thing, that I often feel that um, reductionism is just a tool to reinforce separatism. Mm, and we mm -hmm. have got to stop that. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. From, yeah. from one of our attendees, the left appears keen to label those who stormed the Capitol domestic terrorists, echoing language from the failed war on terror. How might the next administration's approach to addressing these crimes advance or hurt black liberation? Well, I think, I think that, you know, it would be, I heard something about and I, I didn't hear this from um, Biden specifically, but something about um, coming up with a bunch of new laws about domestic terrorism, which of course would be the, the worst idea possible. I mean, we're, we're overrun with laws in this country. Everything that those people did on January 6th was illegal. So I'm not sure why you need a bunch of new laws right. uh, uh, to respond to that. And we know that every time there is an increase in uh, the security state, the surveillance state, you know, the post 9-11 state, um, that it, it has not just a repercussion for black people, but for Muslims and Arabs uh, in particular uh, in, this, in this country. Um, after the, you know, the bombing in Oklahoma City um, in the, uh, when was that, 94, 96, I can't remember. Um, but I do remember Joe Biden um, and the, the Democratic Party, uh, led by Bill Clinton, championing um, the uh, Counterterrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act in 1996, you know, which uh, was really becomes yet another tool in the arsenal uh, to um, harass uh, black people, brown people um, in this country. So I think that what we have to say is that we don't need new laws. Um, you know, uh, we don't need more money siphoned from uh, public, you know, from public programs. And uh, given all of the things that we're trying to respond to, I mean, the Capitol Police, the Capitol Police have a budget of $520 million. And somehow with a budget of $520 million, they were unable to prepare uh, for uh, an onslaught that everyone who bothered to pay attention knew uh, was, was coming. The US military, again, almost $1 trillion uh, a year, no response. So clearly the issue is not more money and not uh, uh, more uh, resources. Um, you know, there, there are much deeper political issues at stake in uh, what happened with the growth of the right, what happened on, on January 6th, and how we respond to that going forward.
So as a professor, writer, and activist, how do you find balance between contemplation and action? And do you have any advice for how we can live creatively and effectively at this intersection? No. <laughs> um, I, you know, I mean, people have to, people have to, to, to figure it out. I'm like, I, I never know how to answer these, these questions. Um, I don't know. I write a lot. I like to write. I'm an academic, so I, you know, have a weird schedule that allows me to write. But I think everyone has to figure out how you can, how you can get involved and how you can plug in. I mean, I used to, you know, go to meetings nine days a week and, you know, 15 hours a day. And I can't, I can't really do that anymore. And so I've tried to figure out what um, my contribution to politics and organizing uh, could be and decided um, that for me, that was, that was going to be uh, writing and, you know, speaking um, when I could. Um, but everyone has to figure out uh, what they can do. But I, I do know that we need a mass movement in this country um, and we need mass organizations um, in this country. And if we don't figure that out, then, you know, there's not going to be any creative work balance or anything else. The planet is on fire. The white supremacist and white extremist right is growing. And, you know, these, these pose existential threats uh, uh, to us. And so it is incumbent um, that we figure these movement questions out. If I can offer, um, I definitely think that what is done is that we all need to contribute in our own way, that we have to, yes. have, our yeah. we have to have our academics who provide us with those frameworks, provide us with that research, and then it's the activists and the other individuals who want to do the more action-oriented to then take that and implement it. But what we don't need to engage in is activism checking or a sense that it looks one way or is the right way. So definitely agree that uh, if writing is, is, your, is your way of being active, that's the way to be active. If getting out on the ground is your way of doing it, that's the way to do it. If you're the person who wants to do both, just get involved because we need all of us to dismantle all of these systems. So that can be tiring though. And with that, I wanna end with this kind of question. How do you sustain your spirit during these challenging times like those that we are facing, intersecting social, political, economic, and the health crisis? Um, you know, I mean, I think that um, I think it's important for people to to be in community with each other, and I think that that's been really difficult, obviously, um, because of this pandemic. But one of the things that has been really um, important is the creative ways that people have responded uh, to that. So, on the one hand, this kind of Zoom you know, everything on camera can be incredibly alienating. On the other hand, um, it has provided some real opportunities to cut through um, borders and to cut through other obstacles that have kept people uh, distant from each other um, and, and has allowed new groups of people to kind of come together and talk about uh, these things. And so I think that that is, um, that's a really important 
uh, development. Um, you know, I, I, for me, I'm, uh, I'm always in, inspired by the, the work that other people are doing and um, the, the resilience um, and ingenuity and creativity of ordinary people, um, not to survive, but to respond uh, to what is happening um, uh, in, this, in this country. And so I, you know, I always find inspiration um, in that uh, I find inspiration in reading, um, you know, about King and movements and organizing and struggle from uh, an earlier era and really trying to figure out its relationship uh, to what is going on um, today and to what we can uh, do today, you know, and my four-year-old helps, my, you know, my partner helps, you know, all, all of those things. But I just think that we, sometimes it, it can feel like, you know, I don't know, like there's, there's a lot of awful things going on um, in the world. And I think that we, we, sometimes we should let the gravity of that wash over us um, and, and really figuring out what we need to do and to kind of set aside some of the, the nonsense that goes on um, in, in political organizing and groups and, and to really sort of look at each other in a different way. And, you know, these are serious threats. And, and it's not just the, the, the right and white supremacists, obviously that, that is a very serious threat, you know, but this is the warmest, 2020 is the warmest year recorded ever. Like, you know, climate keeps being treated as some weird abstract, you know, thought somewhere off in the future and the future is now, you know, we all need to kind of figure out how are we gonna situate ourselves in, in the, the, the movements and the organizing um, and not see that as someone else's um, responsibility. And you know, people have to take care of themselves and, and do what you can do and, you know, and all of that. But there's this bigger issue of, we need to figure out how to come together and what can we work on? What can't we work on? Um, and, and deepen our understanding uh, of history, of, of politics, and how that relates to the, the struggles that we're engaged in. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Taylor, for being in community with us uh, this evening. I know that I'm feeling thank energized. You from the amazing words and this amazing conversation. And I'm hoping that all of our viewers feel as energized to be a part of this movement of dismantling these, these systemic oppressions that we see all around us. And thank you so much. And thank you to the Rothko Chapel for creating this space. And I will call uh, Mr. Leslie to come back up to offer some closing words. Thank you so much. Thank you. When I think of the 50-year uh, journey that the Rothko Chapel has been on, I think of those foundational uh, points that keep this institution, this movement alive. I'm really reminded of five concepts. Illumination, that is illuminating 
that which is before us, to really see life, truth, in ways that really is, really are. The second is that time to deconstruct, that time of radical deconstruction where we hold certain things as a way we think they are, but in fact, they're not necessarily the way they are. And sometimes we have to deconstruct. And then we have to radically reconstruct. A word that came up in a number of times today, reconstruction. And rebuilding around a new set of norms, principles, ethics, and outcomes. I'm also thinking very much of honoring vocation. It's a very interesting conversation right here at the very end of tonight. This idea that sometimes we create hierarchies in movements where someone's at the top and someone's the field soldier down at the bottom. But in fact, some of the most constructive and most successful movements, it's a big table, it's a circle. And then finally, this last part, this bit about how do you sustain your soul, your spirit, your imagination, and your creativity. And it's those five things and much more that the chapel was built upon and for 50 years have been trying to live faithfully into that call, into that vocation. So with that, I really want to express my thanks again to Dr. Taylor for taking the time this evening to be with us. Uh, Mr. Mack, I want to thank you very much for your uh, insights, your keeping the conversation moving along, including a lot of different voices. Uh, I hope that, uh, Dr. Taylor, that some way we can get you back to Texas. Um, uh, come to the chapel for a visit. And that's also extended to all the people tonight. I want to say special thanks to everyone who took the time out of their evening, in some cases we know took the time out of their day, uh, to be with us and to take the time to engage in this process of connecting. And affirming, as Dr. King uh, said, said many, many times in speeches, in sermons, in journals, that that issue around interrelatedness and that sense is if one person is not well, we are not all well. All of us are not well. When one person thrives, we all thrive. And somehow if we could get that at the center of so many of our actions, our policies and our perspectives, these are not new, these are very ancient concepts. We might have a more just, and as Dr. Taylor reminded us, Dr. King's word, a beloved community. As we go forth tonight, I want to invite you to upcoming programs at the Rothko Chapel. All of that is on our website, uh, www.rothkochapel.org, which will also be in closing credits. And with that, I also would like to invite you to take time to listen and watch the closing credits as we lift up in honor all the speakers, presenters, musicians, poets, that have been part of this journey for 50 years within this concept of the living legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. As we close this program this evening, again, I wanna thank you all for participating. I thank our speaker, our moderator for this evening, and I also wish you all good health and all the best in the days ahead. Thank you.